You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Science has long sought a way to get inside the minds of those who have lost the ability to speak. An impressive new effort gets closer not by trying to read people's thoughts, but by working out what they're attempting to say. And around the world, British food gets a bit of a bad rap. The reasons for that stretch back to the Industrial Revolution. But the truth is, back then as now, much of British food isn't even that British. First up, though. Today marks a year since America pulled out of the nuclear deal with Iran. Therefore, I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. The anniversary isn't passing without event. Iran has announced its own partial withdrawal from the nuclear deal today. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. That comes just days after the Americans moved an aircraft carrier into the Persian Gulf on the basis of intelligence of what they said were potential Iranian attacks on American forces. And Michael Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, has turned up unexpectedly in Iraq, which is one of the main U.S.-Iran sites of competition in the region. So it's all kicking off in the Middle East. And it's been a year since President Donald Trump withdrew America from the from the nuclear deal, the, the JCPOA. Run me through again why he chose to do that and what the relations have been since. The JCPOA was the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. This was the fancy name given to the nuclear deal that Iran signed with six world powers back in 2015 to cap its nuclear program, which many people feared was racing towards a nuclear bomb, in exchange for trade and economic relations with the West. I've been doing deals for a long time. I've been making lots of wonderful deals, great deals. That's what I do. Donald Trump said the Iran deal was the worst deal in the world. Never, ever, ever in my life have I seen any transaction so incompetently negotiated as our deal with Iran. And I mean never. He felt not only had it given away too much to Iran, it had allowed Iran to keep the ability to enrich some uranium, which is is a, a potential pathway to a bomb. It allowed Iran sanctions relief that Trump said it would spend on funding terrorism in the region. Uh, It didn't stop Iran from testing missiles, which could be used to cause havoc against uh, the U.S. and its its allies. And ultimately, the biggest complaint that Trump and his team had was that the deal didn't change Iran's approach to the region. It didn't change Iran's willingness to confront the United States, confront Arab allies of the U.S. and confront Israel. And for all of those reasons, he decided 
I'm, I'm done with this deal. I'm going to tear it up and we're going to try bludgeoning Iran into something more formidable, something more constraining. And exactly a year on, then Iran has announced that it itself is going to start to ignore the deal. What's the significance of that? What exactly is Iran doing? Well, um, Hassan Rouhani, Iran's president, has said he will start doing two things under real pressure from his hardliners who have wanted him to do this for a long time. One of them is that it will start building up stockpiles of something called enriched uranium, low enriched uranium. And that's one of the things that can ultimately help you make a bomb. The nuclear deal capped the amount that Iran could have. And Rouhani is saying, "Okay, we're going to break that cap. We're going to build up a little bit more beyond it. The second thing he said he's doing is that he will start building up heavy water. Heavy water is a a specific type of chemical that's used in nuclear reactors that can ultimately make plutonium, which is another way of building a bomb. So Rouhani is not saying we're going to dash for a nuclear weapon. We're going to tear up the deal completely. He's being clever about this. He's saying we'll break out of it in reasonably limited ways, challenging the Europeans to say, are you really going to tear up the deal for these small steps? And so in, in the context of that, there's also this movement of the, the aircraft carrier. You say it's, it's all kind of kicking off. I mean, is it, is it, how much does this sort of stir the pot and how much of this is just kind of um, saber rattling? Very hard to tell. The U.S. has said it has credible intelligence showing that Iran uh, planned to attack U.S. forces and, and U.S. allies in the region using drones, using proxy militia forces. Now, we don't know how good, how solid that intelligence is. Some officials say... They spotted Iran moving entire missiles on tops of boats, which, you know, perhaps they were preparing to use them. Perhaps they were preparing to ready them. Other officials say, hey, look, it's not actually clear whether this was a preparation for an attack or just preparation for a contingency plan in case Iran was attacked first. In other words, getting the stage ready for retaliation. So the intelligence is vague. And I think uh, certainly in Europe, among European diplomats and, and other parts of the world, there's a little bit of mistrust about American intentions and the reliability of these American claims, simply because America and and the person who announced this movement of the carrier, John Bolton, is well known as a a great hawk on Iran, has been uh, wanting to amplify pressure on Iran. So I think there's some suspicion that perhaps the administration may have played up the solidity of this intelligence in order to sort of rattle the saber, as you say, and force Iran to back down and cow it into some kind of submission. Is, is there a sense, do you think, that the, the U.S. Is, is frustrated that even though it's pulled out of the deal, it's reimposed sanctions, that Iran seems to be getting on all right, the regime seems stable? I think it's the opposite. I think that they sniff an opportunity. They see Iran in economic crisis. They are convinced that the protests they see, even if they're over economic issues, are in fact indications of seething discontent against the Ayatollahs. They see a region in which their Arab allies, their Israeli allies are all moving in lockstep. Uh, all unified on the issue of confronting Iran. Um, And I think they see an opportunity to deliver a lethal, decisive blow to Iran, force it to its knees, force it to kind of give up everything it would not give up to Barack Obama back in 2015. So I think this is born of confidence, some would say hubris, not weakness and not, not fear. How, how much of this is that America might want to uh, change the terms, find a different Iran deal, and how much of it is just kind of the early stages of, again, regime change? Well, John Bolton has said when he announced the movement of an aircraft carrier to the region, we don't want regime change. And other officials have said that as well. Do people believe them? Do you? I, 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 no one knows. I'm not sure I do either. I think that 
the Americans have said they don't want this. They said they don't want a, a war. But the conditions they have demanded of Iran, Mike, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, made a list of, I think, 30 or so demands of Iran. This was kind of like a, a Austro-Hungarian ultimatum, right? It was a, a demand that people thought is so extreme, is so sweeping, would necessitate such a dramatic change in everything that Iran does about its foreign policy and its defense policy that it would never be accepted. And if America knows it's making demands that can't be accepted, some people think, is that just a pretext for, for justifying and laying the groundwork for military action? No one really knows the answer to that. But I think the actions of the last few days, the pathway we're now on, should make us all very worried about the prospect of a military confrontation down the line. And so with that in mind and this, these, these sabers being rattled, how do you think this will play out? I think we're looking at the end of the nuclear deal. The Iranians have given Europe 60 days to say, look, you know, give us the economic benefits of this or we'll completely pull out and that that's the end of it. I think Europeans have done the best they can to try and protect their own trade with Iran from meddling American sanctions. They've tried to tell Iran, you're better off in this deal than out. But Hassan Rouhani is under pressure from hardliners at home. He's, he's, he had his chance. The Americans shattered the deal in just the way that uh, the supreme leader of Iran said they would. And so I don't think he has much political leeway to limp on. I think the deal is going to die in 60 days. Once that happens, I think Iran will be under pressure to go back to where it was before 2015, building up its nuclear infrastructure, hinting that it's going to pursue its way to a bomb, not at full speed, but, but creeping its way there, uh, and challenging the Americans to do something about it if, if, they, if they dare. We're going to be back in those very dark, troubling days of sort of 2011, 2012, when the region looked like it was really on edge. Jishong, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Many people suffer from conditions that rob them of their voice. Perhaps most famous among them, the late Stephen Hawking. I think there's no qualitative difference between the brain of an earthworm and a computer. I also believe that evolution implies there can be no qualitative difference between the brain of an earthworm and that of a human. The famed physicist suffered from ALS that first confined him to a wheelchair and then took his voice. A speech synthesizer called Perfect Paul allowed him to speak again, but people who rely on such technology still find it far from easy. So existing technology like the one Stephen Hawking used uh, is just really laborious. Dr. Hawking twitched a cheek muscle to control a computer, which allowed him to speak probably about 10 or 20 words a minute. And similar technology using eye trackers or head movements does a similar sort of speed. Uh, we're speaking at probably about 150 words a minute. So you can see that it's really frustrating for people to use those technologies. Alec Jha is a science correspondent at The Economist, and he's been reporting on new research that might offer hope to those who have lost the use of their voice. Edward Chang, who's a neurosurgeon at the University of California, San Francisco, led a team of researchers who managed to read the brain activity of a, a few patients and then convert that information into speech. And this is what it sounds like. The proof that you are seeking is not available in books. The proof that you are seeking is not available in books. She feel even the most massive process. 
Shipbuilding is a most fascinating process. Alok, this sounds absolutely amazing. How exactly does it work? So what Dr. Chang's team did was to take five patients who had electrodes planted into their brain, and this was part of their treatment for epilepsy, so they didn't specifically implant electrodes for this research. But they took those patients and asked them to read out hundreds of English sentences. And whilst they were reading out those sentences, Dr. Chan's team just recorded the brain activity of those parts of the brain. And what they were specifically interested in is the parts of the motor cortex which uh, control how your lips move, how your your throat um, makes its muscles active in order to make sounds. So rather than directly trying to understand what you're trying to say, it was looking at uh, connecting the brain activity to the shapes of your vocal tract, essentially. And then using machine learning, they converted that into sound. So why didn't they then go looking, uh, if you like, for where the the words arise in the brain, looking for the thought of the words rather than the attempt to vocalize them? Well, it's just much, much harder to do that. So if you're trying to understand what someone's trying to say with their speech, it's going to be really difficult for you to do based on uh, brain activity alone. Whereas this, it sounds difficult, but it's actually a bit more straightforward in some senses because when you're speaking, you don't think about it, but you're moving hundreds of muscles in your lips and your jaw and your throat. And um, there is actually good previous research which has shown that uh, the sounds you make are dependent on, obviously, the shapes of all of these muscles and the activity of them all. So just linking that is a more direct connection to the brain activity than than necessarily um, producing sounds, because you might produce sounds in slightly different ways. You might mean different things with those sounds. And so this was kind of a bit more of a robust chain to them producing speech. So in, instead of trying to gather the, the thoughts as they might exist in, in the brain in their sort of scattered way, it's, it's capturing sort of the intention to speak and, and, and that that is somewhat more universal? Yeah, so what they did in this work was it was a two-step process, actually. So they converted the brain activity to the configurations of your vocal tract. They then created a virtual vocal tract, essentially. And what they found is that that virtual vocal tract, that's sort of um, a a computer model of it, can be used across different people. So there's sufficient um, similarity in the way that your brain operates your vocal tract to anyone else out on the street. Uh, And so then it means that you can practically use this rather than having to train an individual every single time you want to do this. So with that virtual vocal tract then having been developed on these few patients, that can now just be plugged into other patients who can't speak? Well, so there are a couple of steps before you can do that. You probably need many, many more of these sorts of things to actually make it statistically uh, correct. The other thing they did in this work, which is quite interesting, is that obviously they they only spoke to people who could actually speak already. So, you know, they don't need a, a thing like this. Um, so what you want to do is use this technology for people who have suffered strokes or have other conditions which stop them from speaking. Uh, Dr. Hawking had a condition called uh, ALS, um, which has stopped him from speaking. And so and so to use the virtual voice box on those people would be the intriguing thing. Now, of course, they can't control their vocal cords as well as you or I can. And so in this research, Dr. Chang's team did a second step. What they did was to get people to mime speaking. And even when the people got people mimed speaking, the computer and this algorithm and this virtual voice box could extract pretty accurate results from it. So that's the first step. All of this is still proof of principle. You need to do it many, many more times to improve the algorithms, to improve the voice boxes, and then ultimately to be able to sort of use it on people who can't speak at all, you probably need much, much more in terms of clinical trials. So I'm all, always astonished when I see this kind of stuff because we've already moved into a, a world where sort of brainwaves can be used to control prosthetic limbs or, or even, you know, uh, electric wheelchairs and so on. Do you think that, that this kind of technology will kind of join it and just become part of a, a suite of things we can do, let's call it with thought alone? 
I think that's why it's exciting, actually. So we've shown um, using brain-computer interfaces that just by thinking, people who've been paralyzed or who've lost limbs can, you know, move those limbs again just by thinking about actions. Uh, and it gives them a huge amount of restoration of function. Now, speech is much, much more complicated than moving a limb. Because of the successes, though, of, uh, of the previous brain-computer interfaces in clinical trials and, and you know, in patients, th that's why I think this stuff is exciting. It's really complicated. There are many more muscles involved. It's much more fine control of motor function. But the proof of principle shows you can do it. And we should really be excited that actually people will be able to speak again thanks to this. Alok, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Digital disruption has at last come to the world of banking. In a special edition of our business and finance show, Money Talks, finance editor Helen Joyce discusses how the transformation is happening fastest in Asia. On Alipay, I do everything. I'm, I invest uh, in... Karen and Richard are two young professionals working in Shanghai, China's financial capital. They told me how the two most widely used payment apps, Alipay, which is owned by Alibaba, the world's biggest e-commerce firm, and its main rival, WeChat Pay, which grew out of the country's most popular messaging app, have become central to how they both manage their money. And every day in the morning, I wake up and I check my Alipay account to see how much profits I've earned today. <laughs> You can hear more on Money Talks, available wherever you listen. Around the world, Britain fights a bit of a stereotype that the food here is beige, bland, and a bit, well, stodgy. The French have coco van and hollandaise, the Chinese delicate dumplings and Peking duck. Britain, the story goes, has pies and potatoes. But more and more, that idea is being challenged. When I first came to Britain, I have to admit I was actually quite impressed by the food. Leo Marani is The Economist's roving Britain correspondent. Bear in mind, I come from India, and I went into the supermarkets, and there was an array of meat, the sort of which we don't really get in India. There was fish and chips, which is better here than anywhere else I've ever seen. And then... I discovered Britain's greatest culinary contribution to the world, salt and vinegar on potatoes. I think the thing that, that struck me when I got here was just how many sandwiches in boxes there were and how, how central a role that played in everyone's lunch. So naturally, I started eating lots of those. I was led to believe before I got here that British food was going to be appalling. It does have this reputation, which perhaps is why food and drink writer named Pete Brown has published a book, Pie Fidelity, in defense of British food. Pie Fidelity. So how did British food get the reputation that I was exposed to? So it has to do with a number of historical factors, including sort of just a general British attitude towards openness, trade, industrialization. So in France, for example, which is the cuisine to which British food is most often compared, unfairly, in the early 15th century, the village of Roquefort got a monopoly on aging cheese in nearby caves. But in Britain, on the other hand, you know, they were not so precious about local produce. So sometime in the 19th century, the son of a Somerset farmer came up with a methodology to make consistently good cheddar. And then he just had it out free to everybody in the world. And now cheddar is one of the world's most produced and one of the world's most consumed cheeses. In Britain, the attitude was always just much more about marketing, about trade, than about the connection to the land and all that sort of thing. And so, I mean, this carries on to this day. France has more than three times as many protected foods as the UK does. Italy has four times as many. And you mentioned also industrialization. How does that figure in? 
Britain industrialized the first and fastest of all European countries. And so in the 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a huge movement from the land to cities, which sort of led to a decoupling of food from where it's actually grown. And so Britain or British people started to prize convenience and low cost over quality. That's something you can see today as well. Brits spend just over 8% of their income on food, the lowest in the European Union. The Italians spend some 14%, the French spend some 13% of their income. And the other way that manifests today, to come back to your sandwiches in a box, otherwise known as packaged sandwiches, is that in a study of 54 countries, Brits came second in the number of calories consumed from packaged foods. Right. So you've laid out this this case where people aren't too worried about geographic indications. They're worried more about quantity over quality and et cetera. And yet still, you're saying, and in fact, the author of this book is saying British food is great. But that brings us to what is British food, right? And the French can point to, you know, their snails or whatever and say, this is French food. The thing about British food that I think does make it great is that it's an amalgam of stuff from all over the world. Let's take fish and chips, for example, the most classic British dish. The fried fish only gained popularity in the 19th century when Jewish migrants in London started selling it on the streets. The potato only came to this continent around the 15th or 16th century from Latin America and over time grew in popularity. And then only sometime in the 1860s or thereabouts did enterprising fellow in the east end of London say, hey, potatoes, fried fish, let's whack these two together. And there's other examples as well. The British version of curry, and I can attest to this as an Indian, bears no resemblance to an Indian curry. Why? Because it's not an Indian dish. It was invented here by migrant Bangladeshis who were catering to a local population. I mean, one way of putting this argument is that in that sense, um, there kind of is no British food. That is one way of putting it. Or another way of putting it would be that anything can be British food. Leo, thanks for dropping in. Thanks for having me, Jason. By the way, do you want to get a curry later? Ooh, yeah, let's. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.